We're in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 15 today. And uh, I, I appreciate that announcement from, from Brother Daniel. He, he uh, illustrated the sermon with his announcement. He, re, he really did because we're going to talk about some strengths of the church. One of the strengths is unity. And, and if you heard him, he said he's not called to missions. He's, he doesn't have a particular, you know, that he, he needs to go anywhere to do that. Yet he has signed up for the missions conference. Amen. Supporting the church, supporting the missions of the church, supporting pastors of the church, that's great. He's coming together with the rest of the body, even though it's not his, necessarily his big thing, he's still there. And that's, that's an illustration of a little bit of what we're going to talk about, because I, I want to talk about characteristics of strength. Um, I, I'll give you a silly example, and you know, one I probably shouldn't give, but because it, it's about my beloved Clemson Tigers again, um, but... Last year, they were, man, they were just beating everybody. They'd beaten more ranked teams than any other team in the, in the NCAA. And then they played this unranked team, and they lost. And there was some special circumstance around that. It was just like, you know, it, it was weird. They shouldn't have done that. They got, they got beaten. It, you know, they looked like they didn't know what to do. And, and they played some big boys, and they knew what to do. And all of a sudden, they couldn't play football. And that, that's not my concern, the, the, what happened after the game was what, was what I want to point out. You see, the coach of the Clemson Tigers teaches the young men, win with grace, lose with grace. And here they come in, the proud national champions, and they lose to an unranked team. So the coach went to the opposing team's locker room after the game and told them what a great job they had done. And what good men they were. And how much you appreciate them. All those things. The guys on that team were amazed that the coach would come do that. I mean, you know, you, you watch some big name teams and coaches. NFL, college, whatever. High school, it's the ref's fault. We got cheated. This, that, the other thing. And that particular coach went and was gracious to the other team. And went back and told his boys, win with grace, lose with grace. The guys on the other team, those guys were like, I can't believe that Dabo Sweeney came and spoke to us, much less was nice to us. And then they were all like, hey, can we get a picture with you? Not out of, ha ha, we beat this guy, but out of, we respect and honor this guy. You see, the world looks at that as a weakness. It really does. The world looks at humility and those things as a, as a weakness but God calls them a strength. Strength is, well, you beat everybody and you beat them in the ground, and, which is our objective always. I mean, if you're playing a sport, you know, we keep score for a reason, right? There are no losers. or There's no second place. There's only first loser. Just saying. So if you don't have that attitude, man, you are doomed to lose. And uh, we, I don't think anybody ought to have the attitude they ought to lose. But if you do lose, then go, okay, you beat me because you're better than me. But anyway, that, that was a strength. It showed a strength of character, another kind of strength. The Bible says that the mightier is the man that can control himself than the one who can take a city. And so that was a type of strength. We, we do the same thing in churches. Though. We see these big churches. Man, we think, man, that, that would be great. That is better. Well, according to what measurement you use... Of what is good or bad. Bigger is not better and smaller is not better. Better is better. Right? I, I love that phrase. I use that a lot. Bigger is not necessarily better. There are big churches. They look like they got everything under control. 
And not so much is going on that ought to be going on. There's some small churches that look like they're struggling. But man, they, they're getting it right. They're doing the right thing. It's important in our life that we do the right things right. You can do the wrong thing right. And that's not good. You can do the right thing wrong. That's also not good. It's not as bad, but still not good. We ought to be doing the right things right. Right? Right. Okay, good. I won't get that word in your head there. But... But church size doesn't matter. I can, hey, listen, I can promise you, you give me enough money, I can fill this auditorium 10 times every Sunday. I won't be preaching. I'll be bringing in celebrities, paying them big bucks, and everybody will show up. I don't know why I don't show up to see the biggest celebrity of all, Jesus, who comes every week. But, and you don't have to come here to see Jesus. He's everywhere. But, but I'm just saying that size of a church should not dictate what we think of as a strength. Even though nothing wrong with having a big church, nothing wrong with having a small church. Better is better. Are you doing the right things right? And so we want to do the right things right. And I believe in this passage, it gives us at least three characteristics. And I'm not saying these are, these are all the church needs, but in these few verses are three characteristics that I think we ought to have. We ought to look for not only in our personal life, or, but in our church life, or I should have said it, not only in our church, but also in our private life as well. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read verses 12 to 15 of Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to ask Father to help us. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. Why are they returning? They were on the mount. They just saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And so this place is a Sabbath day's journey away. Verse 13, and when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That means his half-brothers. One of those whose name is James, who became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and wrote the book of James later on in the New Testament. But they were there together that day in that place. Let's pray together right now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that, uh, first of all, you are holy. You are separated. You are, you are above your creation. You're beyond your creation. And yet you have not abandoned your creation. You are with us. You are, you are everywhere. But Lord, you are not limited in your creation. You, you're, you transcend it. And we, we are grateful. And yet we get to call you Father. We get to speak to you. We get to know you. Through the blood of Christ shed on a cross. And because he paid the price for our foolishness, our sin, our rebellion and, and, and treachery and traitorness against you. Jesus took all that on himself as we sang a moment ago. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So, Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray today we would see from your word by the power of the Holy Spirit who's been poured out on us by Christ, that we would understand what you would say to your church today. And we thank you, and we pray this prayer in the mighty name, and the only way we can pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Y'all can sit down. I want you to take this phrase home with you today. The church must have a few things right to be effective. I, I, as I said, I, I said it in a silly way, but I believe we ought to be effective. I think we, what we do ought to matter. 
We ought to do the right things in an ineffective way. You can do the right things and nobody ever notice it. I think we ought to be out in our community doing the right things. Loving, serving, and helping our community. Helping them to know Christ. Helping them to grow in Christ. Helping each other to grow in Christ. Loving each other. A lot of things that we need to be doing. So, so the church must have a few things right at least in order to be effective. In order to actually do something well, you've got to prepare. I, I painted houses a little while when I was in college uh, to help pay my way through. And what I learned doing that is painting the house is the, is the smallest thing you do. It's the least thing you do. You prepare, and then they really think you're good if you clean up well because you don't leave a mess. Putting the paint on the, on the surface is the least of your worries. But getting it ready to receive that paint is very important. So, I would say what we do out in a community ought to be probably about 10% of what we do. I spend about 45% of our time getting ready, about 45% of our time following up. The actual impact of what we do only takes about 10% of our time. But that 10% is very important, and we kind of miss that. We love preparing, but we don't like doing. So we spend a lot of time preparing, and then we spend a lot of time talking about why we didn't get it done. But we don't spend very much time getting it done, right? Y'all following me? Okay, good. Don't, don't, don't go quiet on me. I, we'll be here all day. Uh, the first thing I want you to see we get out of this passage is go where God sends you. Notice what it says in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Why did they go to Jerusalem? Because he told them to go. He told them to go wait and, and be in prayer there until power from on high came to them. They, they were only a Sabbath day's journey away. That's a, a, a certain measurement of time because they, they kept the law so strictly that you could only walk so far on the Sabbath day. So they measured that, that distance from Mount Olive to where they went as that, that's how far it was. So they returned to Jerusalem. That's where God had sent them to go. I would like to come at that from the backside because you go, that's right, you got to go where God sends you. I would say be where God has sent you. Not only go where God sends you, but be where God has sent you. So many times in church, we... Talk about people in, in our mind. This is an attitude thing. Because God calls people to go specific places. I firmly believe that. I'm going to show you that in Scripture in just a second. You know, uh, Justin and Rachel have already been mentioned. They're going to Senegal, Africa. God's called them. We're going to help them get there best we can. And, and as soon as they can get gone, and that, that'll be wonderful. Uh, and, and so that's a wonderful thing. But here's the deal. You are here, but you're not here. I mean, we see that in marriages. Man and wife are married, and one of them is present in the home, but they're not there. You, you follow what I mean, don't you? Well, God put Calvary Baptist Church on this hill. Are we present where he put us? Last year, Pastor Todd took kids out and needed a few chaperones. And uh, Janice, my wife, was one of them. And she knocked on the door and she asked, we're from Calvary Baptist Church, do you know where that is? And the lady said, no, I don't think I've ever even heard of that church. And Janice turned around and said, it's that one. And you could see it from there. I don't think she actually said that to the lady, but she told me you could see the church from where she was standing. So I would say we haven't made an impact in the place where people could see the building. Okay. Go ahead, let's just fess up, y'all, so we can do better, okay? We need to, we need to find out. We need to be ministering where, where God has put us. I learned this from my, uh, my buddy. Uh, he, he, he became a missionary for two years in Africa, 
And, uh, uh, and, and he left. He graduated college. His wife is two years younger than him. So he was 21. He graduated college in May. Got married two weeks later. And two months later, he's in Africa with his wife. Now, that's not so bad for a guy. But that twisted his wife right out of the frame. Because she's living at home. Now she's married. Two months later, she's in Africa. A little place called Swaziland. It's the only nation in Africa that is a one-tribe nation. Uh, I don't want to get too political on you, but Britain, when they left Africa, they carved it up into countries, and they just drew arbitrary lines, and every nation in Africa is multi-tribal. You probably remember, if you have any age at all, the, the conflicts in South Africa. And, it, and in America, we thought that was white versus black. No, there's two white tribes, the Dutch and the British. And there's more African tribes than I can name. The Kosa, the Swazi, the uh, Zulu, and it goes on and on and on. There's a ton of tribes. Well, Swaziland, the Swazi said, hey, we just want our little piece that where we've, we're from. And they said, okay, so Swaziland is a one-tribe nation. It's the land of the Swazis. And they have, I, I know a couple of words in Swazi, like, um, well, never mind. But um, Yebo means yes, uh, Ifaliji means refrigerator because he was playing for the Bears then, and I learned that word. But anyway, so Trey goes to Africa, and his wife, six months in, is in the hospital. She's so homesick. So he had some words for her to help her through that, and they got through it, and they spent two years there. But I told you all that to tell you this. He told me one day, because I moved, I pastored in my hometown my first eight years I was a pastor. I started ministering at age 19, was an interim pastor, Spent about a year ministering in both churches, became a pastor, was there over eight years, married Janice, and then we moved away. And so people would say, where are you from? And I would say, well, I, originally I'm from Charleston, but now I live in. And Trey, my buddy from Africa, said, don't say that. I said, what do you mean? He said, you are from where you live. He said, don't be going back to Charleston to your doctor. Find a doctor there. Don't be going back to Charleston for this or that or the other thing. And when somebody asks you where you're from, you're from where you live. I didn't even tell my mom that. One time my mom on the phone said, when are you coming home? I said, I am home. What do you mean? She said, you know what I mean. This is your home. I said, no, where I live is my home. That's where I came from. That's where I grew up. So I even do that now. Whenever I meet somebody, I go, where are you from? And if, if they say, I'm from New York. I say, where'd you grow up? Tennessee? Thank you. Got it. All right. Thank you. I knew there was something wrong there. New Yorkers don't talk like that very much. And I only say all that to say, is the church present where God has put us? Have we taken responsibility that God put Calvary here for a purpose, for a reason? Why are you where you are is the question you have to ask. So God may call you to another place. And if he does, praise the Lord, go and go with enthusiasm and be there. But if you're here, you are from here until you go there. So if right now God has you here, then do it here. You know how many volunteers we get for ministries that have never even worked in that ministry? People want to be the speaker. They want to be the teacher. Well, where do you go to Sunday? I don't go to Sunday school, but I think I could teach a class really well. Have you ever been to Sunday school? Nope, but I could teach. Well, you need to go to Sunday school a little while before you start teaching there. Do you get my example? I don't know. I might have stepped on somebody's toes. I apologize if I did, sort of. But 
I'm, I'm just saying, we get this grandiose idea of something over here. What are you doing where you are? As a dear old saintly lady told me one time, it's not what you would do if millions should be your lot, but what are you doing with the dollar and quarter you got? Man, Lord, give me a million dollars. I'd tithe. Well, are you tithing the hundred dollars you got now? We heard on the radio yesterday, the, the guy that started Hobby Lobby, was it his mom or was it him? His mom, if someone gave her a gift, would ask, I don't want to be nosy, but would you tell me how much you paid for that? And then she would tithe 10% of what that gift cost that person to give it to her. Because she didn't want to receive anything, she didn't tithe it. Her son founded Hobby Lobby. <laughs> so that hopefully will tell you something. We need to go where God sends us. They went back to the upper room. We see this in Scripture. In Elijah, uh, uh, in 1 Kings 17, we see Elijah. And I, I, I kind of need to turn there. But uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 and 4. What happens is God sends Elijah to talk to Ahab, the wicked king. And he says this. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah, and said, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Vance Havner pointed out, if Elijah had gone anywhere else, he'd have starved. Because the ravens are not going to disobey God. They're not going to hunt for Elijah. They're going to carry food where God told them to carry food. And if Elijah said, oh, I don't like the brook Cherith. Man, I've got a better brook over here I like better. I'm going to go over there. He'd just starved to death. God will supply what you need where he sends you. Don't miss that point either. So if God has put Calvary here and he's put us here for a purpose, and we've got to figure out what that purpose is, will God supply what we need to fulfill the purpose for which he put us here? That sounds like a lot of words, but that was logic. Oh, God just throws you out there and says, go wherever you want, and hopefully, you know, it'll work out for you? Or does he have a plan? Does he place you in a place and then say, be there, do the work there, and I will send the resources you need there? Is that not true? Please, somebody say amen. Yes, that's true. So Calvary needs to figure out what God wants us to do and start doing it because God's going to take care of it. And the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 9, it's a, long, it's a long passage. Let me just say, it says he took his every person and every possession he had. God said go, and he started going. He left. He moved out. And in the Old Testament, the idea of being separated unto God has a physical separation element in it. There is a religious train of thought which believes they call it separation oh i can't be associated with sinners and that's a wrong application of it i can prove that from jesus's life and so they don't want to be they, they separate themselves not only from sinners but from christian people that don't sin like they do and in fact if you're a christian and you hang out with people that don't sin like they do they'll separate themselves from you too and living in a hole never made anybody holier Jesus, the only people I troubled Jesus were religious people. All the sinners loved him because he loved them. And he brought that message of salvation. So Abraham left and he went out away from his people in the sense that he was totally consecrated to God. 
In John 17, Jesus prayed, I pray that you would keep them in the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. I pray that you preserve them in the world. Jesus, you would never accuse Jesus of not being separated totally unto God, would you? You're crazy if you would, and we'll have to have a long conversation afterwards, unless you're so dumb you can't catch on, and if you can't, then I'm not going to waste my time. Jesus was totally separated from God. Yet he hung out with prostitutes and people that stole tax money and all kind of stuff. Called one of them to be his disciple. Called some of the prostitutes to follow him and be his disciples as well, just not in the sense of the 12 apostles. Thank you. And then, as an example from Jesus' life, in John 4, 4, it says this about Jesus. John said about Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. Now, we read that and go, oh, that was the road. No. John wrote that because Jesus did not have to go through Samaria because everybody went around Samaria. Nobody went into Samaria. It was all half-breeds, half-Jew, half-everything else. As the nation was conquered and they'd send people away and all this, some of the women, whether voluntarily, involuntarily, had children by non-Jewish people, and those people became the Samaritans. They still are in existence. There's only a few of them left because they never would marry outside of their own community, and it's, it's a sad thing. But... But nobody met, the Gentiles didn't like them because they're half Jewish. The Jewish people didn't like them because they're half Gentile. And nobody would bother them. And John makes a point to say, Jesus had to go through Samaria. That was a thing of Jesus' will, not of physical necessity. You following me? And he gets to that well. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because there was a woman of Samaritan who needed him. And so he didn't care where that was. He went there because that's where he needed to go. So Calvary, I ask you, where do we need to go? Well, we shouldn't go there. Why not? Don't they need Jesus? We're not going to protest. We're going to witness and love people. Right? So go where God sends you. Secondly, in this passage, we see a roll call of the apostles in the first part of verse 13. And then the verse 4 says, all these with one accord, that's not a Honda, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. I want you to notice that. We need to guard our unity. It also says, with the women. You say, well, if they were all together, of course the women were there. Listen, you're looking at that with an American mind. You can even go back 2,000 years in the Middle East when a woman was a piece of property. And suddenly Jesus brings them in and puts them into ministry in the church. I know we're Baptists and we're very conservative Baptists. And some of my conservative friends don't quite catch this. But there are women preachers in the New Testament. There are women servants in the New Testament. There are women who prophesy in the New Testament. The very first convert in Europe, and the reason we're sitting here is because there were converts in Europe, was a woman, a seller of purple, which I'll show you later about prayer, Paul went over there and he said, where would people meet to pray? I think they'd meet there. He goes there, there's a woman there praying. Lydia, seller of purple. He tells her about Jesus. She gets saved and the gospel spread into Europe. And today we sit here thousands of years later because of that. Hello. They were together in prayer with the women also. They were in unity. They were united. They were not necessarily in unison, but they were in unity. And Jesus taught this in John chapter 10. He teaches that, that he has others that aren't in the flock yet. In, Genesis, in, in John 
10, 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. We are all one in Christ. I don't care what denominational label you might wear. I don't care what else there is about you that makes you a little bit different from me. If you're in Christ, we are one in him. We are brothers and sisters But even more than that, in John 13, 34 and 35, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We heard a sermon about that uh, during the Easter time. Listen, what it says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. They'll know you're my disciples if you go to church. Nope. They'll know you're my disciples if you wear a Baptist label. Nope. They'll know you're my disciples if you tithe. Nope. They'll know you're my disciples if you pray. Nope. All those are marks, maybe, of being a disciple. But Jesus said, here's the mark of a disciple. You have love for each other. I would say amen to that. So Jesus taught us that. Paul taught us it in Philippians 2. He says, <laughs> Philippians was a thank you note to the Philippian church because they paid for him to rent a house. They'd have to sit in a stinking prison. And in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, I meant that literally. The prison stunk. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit in humility. Oh, let's not read that verse. Let's skip that verse. Well, I better read it just to be faithful. Count others more significant than yourself. Everybody is more important than me. That's what it said. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. We walk around like the cock of the walk, like, man, I'm the dude, I'm the man. God make a million of you just by whispering it out. He don't need you, but you need him. And you ought to come with humility and gratefully. God would even dare to use you and dare to save you. And that means if God has saved you and he puts you in a place where you're supposed to be in unity with others, you're supposed to be serving everybody else and you go last. That is very contrary to human nature and what we learn in America. And though politically I believe in America first, I don't believe in me first in the church. You can always tell, I think, and if what follows after I think has anything to do about your own comfort and pleasure and desire, you got a problem. And Philippians 4 says this in verses 1 to 3, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche, those are two women's names, To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. These women were in a fight. And Paul says, you tell them, quit fighting. And here's why the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says this. I could quote it, but I want to read it out of the ESV. I'd be quoting King James. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. My goodness, I'm going to have to read that again. Beloved, let us love one another. Amen, preacher. Because love is from God. That's right. And whoever loves has been born of God. That's a truth, preacher. And knows God. Amen. And anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Hold on. What, who I got to love? Well, Jesus said, your enemy. Those who hate you, those who use you, those who persecute you, you got to love them. Okay, now I think you've gone too far now, preacher. Well, let's finish. Anyone who does not love does not know God. You got two people in church fighting over something. One or both of them are wrong. Because the only one that's right is God, and his opinion is the only one that matters. So if two people are fighting, what they got to do is go, hey, you and I can't agree. Let's go to God and see what he wants, because it's probably what neither one of us want. And let's find out what God has to say about it. Because love is from God, and everybody loves knows God. And if you don't love, you don't know God. Period. That's not a, that has no exception. Oh, unless they're just an idiot and, you know, need, you know, there are people that I could slap. God would say amen. I, I'm just saying, though, that that's not what he, he tells me in Timothy. Don't do that. He said, don't be a brawler. So I got to go, okay. I can't fight, even though I want to sometimes, because... We got to love each other. Amen? Amen? I'm being a little bit exaggerated here so you get the point. We are supposed to be in unity. There's nobody in here that's not supposed to be in unity with each other in Christ. And so if you and I have some disagreement, we got to go before God and say, God, what do you want? What is your desire? And we've got to base our decisions on that. And the third thing I see in Acts chapter 1 in these verses, we've already read it. It sort of sounds a little bit similar, but it is a little bit different. They were, when they were all together, what were they doing? Devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They all were together in prayer. They were met together praying. They were joined together in prayer. Everybody was praying and they were praying constantly. Prayer, 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 prayer. Why? Because you and I are not real bright, and we need God's knowledge and wisdom to do the right things, and to do the right things the right way. There's a warning in Luke 21 that, that I would love for you to catch. In Luke 21, verses 34 and 36, through 36, it, it says this, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus saw the, cru the crucifixion coming and in the garden he prayed and prayed and prayed for three hours to make it through the cross. Because he did everything as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Not as a divine God that had no worries or concerns. He accomplished that as a man. And he warns us, you better be praying. You better pray, 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 pray. Today's Gospel Project Sunday School lesson, Titus 2, 11 to 14. It tells us that, that uh, we ought to uh, stay in prayer, be in prayer, to be constant in prayer. Listen, here's how it puts it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people 
uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We ought to be in union. We ought to be in prayer. And there's warning that we need to be careful. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why. We, 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 I'm going to give you some verses out of Acts and, and, and we'll be done in a moment. But in the past couple of weeks, I didn't know this. Uh, my my brother-in-law is with us today and, and he was telling me that I didn't even hear. Two great Christian leaders in the past week or two weeks have fallen and had to resign from their positions. One, one's a pastor up near Chicago. He's written many books. I've got some of his books on my shelf. Uh, he is a renowned uh, guy. And he messed up. I don't know what he did. Don't want to know. Don't care. Just want to pray for him. Another one is the top leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. Among Southern Baptists, we meet two days a year. That's the only time the convention exists. The rest of the time, we have what we call the executive committee. They make executive decisions. And the head of that is the president of the executive committee. And they make the decisions year-round on how we're going to operate, what we're going to do, taking information from the convention and working it out. He's basically what we would call the CEO of the convention. He's a godly pastor from South Carolina, was that man. And in the past week, he had to go and say, I messed up and I got to step aside. Now, the chairman of the committee that will find his replacement has said, pray for him. Pray for us. Pray for all of us. But this morning in Sunday school, part of the lesson, I happened to go to a Sunday school class and then Everybody got nervous because one of the questions was, what makes a good preacher? And I was sitting there, good pastor. <laughs> and they waited till I left to say it. But anyway, <laughs> no. But, but one thing I pointed out there because of my knowledge of that is, pray for us. Pray for us. Did, did you hear, y'all are more important than me. And that's got to be my attitude. And I hope it's your attitude, but you need to be praying for me. I need to be pray- I should have been praying for Brother Frank, the, the, the CEO of the convention. I should have been praying for Christian leaders in this nation because all of us are under attack, right? And so there's a warning here. They, they grew in prayer. They, they prayed and prayed and prayed. In the book of Acts, we see this. In Acts four, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, it says the apostles appointed deacons so that they could have more, less time to do that and more time to pray and learn God's word. It, it says in Acts uh, chapter 12 and verse 5, Peter's in prison. And so the church was united praying for Peter in prison. They didn't believe it when God answered it. But they prayed and God answered the prayer. And in and, and, and chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, is where we see Paul going and finding Lydia in a place of prayer. And the gospel goes into Europe and spreads. And so we sit here today because the founders of this nation came from the descendants of, those, of that witnessing. We just finished preaching through Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 18. After the armor, he says... Put it on in prayer. Use it in prayer. Pray about it. Pray, 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 pray. Over and over and over and over. Because prayer is how we wield the weapons. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 2. It tells us to be steadfast in prayer. But you're there hopefully in Acts. Look in chapter 4 of Acts. Because this is, this is powerful. 
When I was younger, I used to think, man, before I die as a preacher, I'd like to see this and this and this. Most of those things were very foolish and I've given up on them, but I haven't given up on this one. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. And it's nobody's fault but my own because I I can't blame anybody else for what I'm not willing to do. But Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You've been to a prayer meeting yet that resulted in an earthquake? Well, we go, yeah, 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 we got to pray more so God will give us an earthquake. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Why were they praying and what were they praying? They were praying because they had gotten Peter and John. They had, they had threatened them. They had done some things to them. And they set them free. And they came in and said, hey, this is what happened. They threw us in prison. They, they got on our case a little bit. Then they told us we got to be quiet about preaching about Jesus. And so they prayed and they said, God... Give us boldness to do it anyway. And when a church finds itself, we can't do that because we are not praying boldly, are we? We're not praying for boldness and we're not being bold. Well, you know, they won't let you. Really? (laughs) Really? We're going to catch you, torture you, and kill you. God, give us boldness never to shut up. We're going to do it anyway. And when they prayed that God's will be done regardless of the consequences, it caused an earthquake. God went, that's what I like. Good job. I think it was just God high-fiving them in the building. Way to go. Whoa. All right, Lord, I guess you like that one. Man, I'd love being a prayer meeting resulted in an earthquake, wouldn't you? What are we going to do with these things this week? First of all, meet God where he sends you. Is God at work at Calvary? Okay, some of y'all aren't convinced. Is God at work at Calvary? Okay, some of you seeing it. Is God at work in Stanton? Does he want to be? Yeah, well then join him where he's at work. Don't be trying to come up with something new and big. God's already doing stuff. Get, just hang out with God and do what God's got going on. Just say, you know what? I believe God's at work. I want to join him in his work and start working. So how can I do that? Well, we'll, we'll be helping you as we go. So meet God wherever he sends you. But right now, we are from Calvary in Stanton, Virginia, right? Secondly, pray with somebody you do not know. Now, let me, I want to clarify that. Because I I don't want to put a bunch of words that you don't get. You got the germ there, but here's the disease I want you to get from that germ. I'm not talking about outside the church. I don't want you to go to work tomorrow and pray with somebody you don't know. I want you to pray with somebody in this church you don't know. There's enough of us, statistically speaking, you can only know about 60 people. You will regularly run into, communicate with, have fellowship with, talk with 60 people. If a church is more than 60 people, you're not going to know everybody anyway. That's just a fact. Church, we used to pastor, we had three services. And somebody was in Walmart talking to somebody else in Walmart and invited them to the church. And they said, we are members at that church. Oh, we go to the first service. Oh, we go to the third service. So they never had met. And there were 44 doors in and out of that, those buildings. So they just had never seen each other. And thankfully, they were both witnessing. So that was a good thing, right? If you see somebody you don't know in church, in these buildings, just say, hi, my name's Stuart. How long have you been coming to Calvary? 
And if they say, I've been here for 40 years, go, well, man, I never got to meet you. That's awesome. I could learn a lot from you. Could we pray together? Can we say a prayer right now? And just pray. If they say, I, I was the first day I've ever been here. Say, oh, I, I've only been coming for, you know, 40 years. <laughs> I'm still learning, but I'd love to pray with you. And I'll challenge you even further. Find somebody like that, and for just one week, not, not to make it weird, and if somebody didn't hear this and you do it, it's going to scare them. So I'll just go ahead and warn you. But just say, I would like to pray with you several times this week. Would, if I gave you my phone number, would you call me or would you allow me to have yours? And I'll call you when's a convenient time of the day when I could call. Maybe I'll call you Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And, and we'll just say a prayer over the phone together. I'd love to get to know you better. You might find you got a friend here you didn't know you had. But at least we'll be talking to people you may only see on that one time. And you pray with them. And you start realizing, wait, I'm not alone here. There's more people here. And we'll start building a little bit more unity that way. Because we've got to be united in prayer and the will of God, right? Number two is not about prayer. It's about unity. And so just introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. And then I did that this morning before service, didn't I, Pepper? Amen. Um, thirdly, Pray. Suggest prayer, encourage prayer, ask for prayer. Listen, if you're involved at, at Calvary and, 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 and you go somewhere, you're in Sunday school, you're in choir, you're eating supper on Wednesday night, you're helping with the Awanas, you're with the youth, you're in choir, whatever, just raise your hand and go, hey, can we pray? Just encourage it, ask for it. Somebody comes up and goes, how's it going? Pretty good, you want to pray about it? And pray. Let's just pray. Just pray it. Let's just pray. Just, hey, what day is it? It's Sunday. Well, let's pray. Tuesday. What day is it? Tuesday. Let's pray. Do it here. And then when you go to work tomorrow, I don't know. You may eat lunch at your desk. Be like me. I don't usually even eat lunch if I do it. It's at my desk. Usually. But maybe you go out with people or maybe you eat with some workmates and all. You don't know where they are spiritually. Just say, hey, I'm sorry. I usually pray before I eat. If y'all want to join me, you can, or I could pray for you. Is there anything I can pray for you about? And if they go, oh, no, we don't. Okay, well, I'm just going to bow my head and pray. I guarantee you they won't eat till you're done. And then when you pray, you can say, dear Lord, I just thank you for my friends here that I get to sit with. I love them so much that I want them to know how much you love them because you died on a cross for their sin just like you died for mine. I thank you that I know your forgiveness. Oh, and bless our food. Amen. See, you can do evangelistic praying, can't you? When I first met Janice, we were at a, a conference, a bunch of people, about 30 people. We didn't know each other then. I'm surprised after this she even talked to me. But we all went to this restaurant. And back in those days, man, anywhere I was, I had a Bible like that. So we're at this thing. I'm trying to dress like Don Johnson. It wasn't working, but I was doing it anyway. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you because she's going to tell you later and I'm going to feel real embarrassed. But anyway, so I have my Bible and we go out to eat and I lay my Bible down and it's, it's, it's a bunch of people. And for whatever reason, I guess they forgot who, I, who they were sitting with. They said, Stuart, would you lead us in prayer? I said, sure. We're at a big restaurant, dishes clanking, people talking. And I stood up and I heard the one who asked me to pray go, Stuart, no. And they were going to say no. But before they got the word no out, I said, Dear Heavenly Father. And I heard everything go. <laughs> Total silence. 
So I pray a prayer similar to what I just said, an evangelistic prayer. Amen, in the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs> I was kind of, you know, crazy preacher. And then Janice, I think she felt sorry for me, took me on as a project. So that was good. <laughs> so it's been 30 years, we're still together. That's awesome. But, but listen, all you got to do is, I, I've known only a couple of people ever said, no, I don't want you to pray for me. Only a few. Everybody wants you to pray for them. And, and I'll tell you, the only people, usually, there's one exception to what I'm about to say that I know of, especially if they're in trouble. People say, I don't believe in God. And then something bad happened in their life. Would you pray for me? Sure. To the God you don't believe in? Absolutely. Love to do it. Pray, 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 pray. If we'd pray here and find the power of God, and we would pray with them and let the power of God descend because you become an open channel for God to work. What could God do? That's just one little simple thing you could do to begin to open gospel conversations with people. You say, I'm at work. I don't know how to witness. Don't witness. Pray. Pray out loud. Pray with them. Just go over and go, you look troubled today. Is there something I can pray for you about? Well, I'm, I'm nervous about That's okay. I'll, I'll just go back to my desk and pray for you, but I just want to pray for you. What, what's going on? And you'll, they'll find out you care. We need to be in prayer, though, in the church. That church... They went where God sent them. They were united in prayer. If we had those three characteristics, man, that'd take us pretty far, don't you think? 